Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, firstly, let me introduce myself. My name is Professor uh, Michael Cox. I'm one of the co-directors of IDEAS um, with uh, Professor Arnie Westad of the Department of International History. So welcome to this uh, LSE IDEAS Gilda Lehrman Lecture uh, in American History uh, this evening. As you know, there's been a long association between the Cold War, what was the Cold War Studies Center, which is now IDEAS, and the Gilda Lehrman Institute um, in New York. We've hosted now several very distinguished professorial lectures at the LSE on American history, uh, none more distinguished than the one being given tonight by Professor Peter Onuf of UVA. I, I made the stress there on the word Peter because I have to admit uh, that I was a little bit confused at first. As you know, I am what they call an IR scholar, although those two terms may co be contradiction in terms. Um, but I am in IR, international relations. So when I heard that a certain, a certain Professor Onuf was coming to speak tonight, I assumed it'd be Professor Nick Onuf, who taught IR at Florida International University. Now, I quickly spotted the error and even more quickly changed my introduction. Um, <laughs> though I should point out straight away that uh, they are brothers. <laughs> uh, and I noticed that, Peter, you've done at least uh, two books uh, with your brother, Nick Onov. So anyway, uh, I found the right brother, uh, or at least we've got the right one, uh, the historian Peter Onov at the University of Virginia uh, in, uh, in the United States. A long and distinguished uh, academic career, uh, well over 20 books with your name on the cover, The Revolution of 1800, Democracy, Race, and the New Republic, Jefferson's Empire, uh, Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, all over the map, rethinking region and nation in the United States, Jeffersonian legacies, some edited, some single, and some, of course, worked with Nick Onuf, uh, his brother, on Federal Union, Modern World, the Law of Nations in an Age of Revolution, and Nations, Markets, and War, worked with uh, Nick in 2006. Uh, we're delighted to welcome you here this evening, Peter, to talk on democracy in America, Jefferson, Tocqueville, and Lincoln. You're welcome to the LSE. We look forward to what you have to say this evening. Peter, over to you. Thank you. It's a great honor to be here. Uh, and if any of you came to see my brother, I apologize. It has happened in the <laughs> past. As I was telling Mick, at, uh, I gave a talk in Germany. And a guy came up somewhat irate and said, I came here to see your brother, especially, and uh, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> so be nice. Actually, we're very close, as uh, the introduction suggested, and we've written a couple of books. And what I'm going to say tonight grows out of some of the work that he and I have done. I have spent much of my career studying early American Republic and federalism in particular, and because, opportunistically, I wanted to do something with my brother, I write books with people so I can spend time with them. That's a dirty secret. You shouldn't know it. Uh, and that is, because Nick did do IR, then we found a common ground. And that is, by thinking of the American Federal Republic as a state system, we could begin to talk, talk about the relationships between what was happening in America and what happened in the Western world. And Nick didn't think he was an historian until we started working together. But as a constructivist, if you know what that is, are there IR people out there? 
Constructivists seem really dangerously transgressive to serious IR types who do realism or whatever the British do now. We don't do anything really. You don't do anything really. (laughs) Hanging on while the crisis passes is over. Right. But in fact, constructivism is just a fancy term that appropriates some of the new new approaches in humanities scholarship and applies them in international relations because that's not a science, believe it or not. It is a humanities discipline. But what constructivism really is, is history. It's the understanding that things change and that meanings change. And if there's a great problem with old-fashioned IR theorists, then there's not a single one in the room I know. It's that they think that the basic terms, they're like economists, kind of second-rate economists who, who believe that the market functions in a certain way and you can isolate the conditions and, uh, uh, in which markets operate, and then you can predict things, just the way we predicted this recent financial implosion yeah. and the way we predicted the end of the evil empire, and the list goes on and on and on. What I'd like to do tonight is to talk about three iconic figures in American history who have written about or contributed to our understanding of what democracy means. And this is the 200th anniversary of Lincoln's birth, and we are celebrating him. And actually, if there were somebody to celebrate, I'm okay with that. I have trouble as a Jefferson expert being unequivocally enthusiastic about my subject. And you'll see as I talk tonight why that is so. But what I'm going to suggest is that Lincoln is a very strange character in the 19th century. And it's his strangeness. It's the way that he bucked the times. It's the way that because of the contingencies of the American Civil War, the sectional crisis, and then the great struggle over the preservation of the Union that became a war against slavery, it's because of those unforeseen contingencies that Lincoln played such a crucial role in redefining democracy in the mid-19th century. So my first and radical proposition is that Americans think they know what democracy is, but they're wrong. They don't know. They confuse democracy with their way of life. This is certainly something that Tocqueville observed when he traveled in America. And that is, he understood democracy to be the political culture, the folkways, the way Americans understood their world. And Americans tend to believe that the American way of life is synonymous with democracy. I'm not going to give you a good, clear, scientific answer to what democracy is because I'm an historian and I'm going to tell you it is a work in progress. It has meant different things. It has many latent meanings which are even now being discovered and are working out. So if there's any relevance for the modern world, it would be in asking you to think with me historically about the way the key terms that we deal with have changed over time. Well, let's get into our topic and talk about democracy and these three men. And the first point I want to make, I've already intimated this, is that the idea of democracy came into the Western world as a powerful force, one that nobody could have predicted 
during this age of the so-called democratic revolutions, beginning with the American Revolution, its birth is, is coincidental with the emergence of the modern idea of the nation. Now, it's a simple point, but it's important. Because there are a whole range of meanings associated with democracy. On one end, we can identify democracy with liberation. Democracy with overthrowing despotic regimes. Certainly, this is what Thomas Jefferson thought was happening in 1776. For him, it was a great global, epical, moral struggle for the basic principles of free society, government by consent, all men are created equal, against the tyrannies of the old regime, against priestcraft, as he called it, the rule of the clerics, against aristocracy, against monarchy, against the assumption that all men are created unequal. That liberationist notion of democracy, of overthrowing tyrannical and despotic rule, is, of course, fundamental to American self-understanding. We think that this is what the United States is all about. And that idea of democracy as an unalloyed positive good, of course, is very much a part of our national self-understanding. It's something that we think we should and have a moral obligation to export to the rest of the world. Or perhaps you can just admire us from afar. And maybe you could be American yourselves one day if you really worked at it. But there is another meaning for democracy that's associated with the idea of nation. And that is of power the possibilities of mobilizing unprecedented power in the name of the nation to pursue whatever goals are destined for that nation to pursue. You've perhaps heard the phrase manifest destiny as a catchphrase for American expansionists in the 19th century. Of course, that destiny was a providential destiny it wasn't something that we self-willed, it was the will of God for the betterment of humanity. Nations make war with each other because they have the tremendous capacity to do so and the moral imperative and sanction to do so because the first law of nature and nations is self-preservation. Do you want to enjoy the fruits of a free society? Do you want to pursue happiness? Do you want to enjoy rights? You can only do so if the nation survives. 1776 may mark the beginning of an era defined in America by the apotheosis and celebration of natural rights. All those ideas that are so brilliantly epitomized in Jefferson's de Declaration of Independence. But at the same time, it's not just those rights that have changed the world, that idea of government by consent. Independence means power. In 1801, in his inaugural address, Thomas Jefferson said, to hoots of derisions from his partisan enemies, that the United States government was the strongest government on earth. What on earth could Jefferson have meant by that? Surely he wasn't referring to firepower, coercive capacity in a conventional sense, 
We had a few ships, but we were about to mothball them, maybe 2,000 troops. But what Jefferson had in mind, and this links Jefferson with democratic mobilizations across Europe, popular mobilizations, what he had in mind was that every individual American in a time of crisis would rally to the cause. Their plows would become swords. They would give up their lives. They would make the ultimate sacrifice. And here's a paradox at the heart of Americans' self-conception. On the one hand, of course, it's the land of rampant individualism. Individualism, a word that in the American context was coined by Tocqueville. That is, we're all pursuing our happiness in our different ways. Yet these people who seem to be the epitome of selfishness and self-seeking, that's the great critique that we constantly make of each other. We are, however, in time of crisis, ready to lay down our lives for each other. And it's that willingness to sacrifice that makes the power of a democracy irresistible. You'll see that the words democracy and nation slide back and forth in my talk, and that's irresistible. And it's something I want you to keep in mind. Those of you who think about the democratic peace theory, that is that democracies are naturally peaceful, aren't they? Democracies never make war against each other. They don't have incentives to because they just believe in freedom, happiness, all those good things. Why would a democracy make war? Just change the word from democracy to nation. Do nations make war? Well, I've said that before. It's axiomatic. Of course nations make war. How do you distinguish a nation from a democracy? Because the fundamental principle of modern nationhood is popular sovereignty. That is, that the people govern themselves. There is that collective dimension, then, to democracy, because there can be no democracy without this collective assertion of will and without the preservation of the republic or the democracy. Those two things work together. Now, I mentioned that Jefferson thought that the revolution, which would be a model for revolutions throughout the world as the old regime was destroyed one nation after another, didn't quite work out that way, but that was the dream. For Jefferson, this was a clear divide between the past and the future between a tyrannical old regime and the promise of democratic self-government and free society. It was unequivocally a moral good. There is no question that governing ourselves, attending to and supporting each other in our rights, what could be a higher vocation for us? Well, Alexis de Tocqueville had a rather different view of things. And this is why I bring him to the table. Americans love to read Tocqueville because he's the first European commentator who didn't say snide and dismissive things about the Americans. Because let's face it, in the 18th and 19th century, Americans were provincials. They were in every measurable way inferior to their metropolitan or former metropolitan betters in Europe. They were creoles. They were, as 18th century commentators thought, degenerate by definition. What happened in America? 
probably some of you know, you've been there, you might even be Americans. But I'll tell you what happens from the European perspective. We have, among other things, not only the, the rape and pillage and stripping of resources from a fertile land, but we have the decimation of the Indians. Need I go on? We have slavery. We have race mixing. Do we have a great literature in America? Do they produce art? Well, Thomas Jefferson got into a big argument about this and said, well, we have David Rittenhouse, who created a model of the, of the solar system, or orrery, which is a big deal in the 18th century. And we have George Washington. And, well, no, we don't have a Shakespeare yet, but we're working on it. Uh, Philip Roth was getting impatient, and he said, I'm just going to write a book and call it the great American novel. But uh, I don't know. I don't think people agree. Uh, about that. I think Roth is terrific. That wasn't a negative comment. It's just this sense of cultural inferiority. I think it's only recently when we discovered that the world is our world, and I'm being offensive now, and, and please bear with me, that <laughs> Americans got over their sense of inferiority, particularly when it comes to television. That's why we watch, I, I don't know, Masterpiece Theater. You know what that is? That's mm. kind of the best of BBC, <laughs> and we watch it every Sunday night and feel, God, why can't we produce anything like that? They have such good actors in, in England, and we're so lousy. Uh, whatever. <laughs> I don't think we feel this anymore. Um, the last time we felt it was with the British invasion, with the Beatles and so forth, but we've fought back. <laughs> anyway, I, I, that, I'm just pandering to try to be relevant and speak to younger <laughs> people now. All right. America was a second-rate power, uh, certainly inferior, a neo-Europe, not uh, surely a serious place. But Tocqueville came to America, and he said, I don't see degeneracy. I don't see barbarism. I don't see a regression to nature and savagery. What I see is the future. And this is what makes Tocqueville so compelling. What did he see as the future? This aristocrat from France, who suffered bitterly, his family did, because of the transformations of the French Revolution, Tocqueville always had an aristocratic sensibility. Why would he come to America and say, this is the future? Well, he said, it's in America that we see the idea of equality, which is the master idea of the modern age, in which all of you believe that you are equal. And there's no turning back from that. Once you have shown that the emperor has no clothes, that the king has no aura of divinity, once you have shown that there is no human reason why some of us should be born to rule over others, once you know this, there is no turning back. And that is the key to modern history, is that knowledge that the fundamental premises of the old regime no longer obtain. But here's where Tocqueville is particularly interesting. Because he says, I see democracy is the future. And I even see that it could be a benign future when I look at America, because most Europeans would expect to see anarchy, degradation, the list of things I described before. Tocqueville instead sees order in apparent disorder, patterns in busyness that people seem off pursuing their different versions of happiness, but somehow their enterprises are all working together. 
we don't have social disorder. We have an extraordinary amount of peace in America. We have the success of what we now call civil society. Tocqueville was impressed with this, but it didn't mean that he thought that this would necessarily be the future of the world, of his world, of France. He said there is going to be a fork in the road that for every nation. Does equality, the principle of equality, this new knowledge that we all have, is it going to lead to freedom, to liberty, toward rule of law, towards all those things that we cherish? Or will it lead to a new form of despotism? Will this lead to a centralization and consolidation, a concentration of power? Will it lead to the kind of force that was unleashed by the French Revolution? The taste for equality, the passion for equality, is so profound this is Tocqueville speaking now, that people would rather be equal in slavery than that some should be free and others be beneath them. The passion of equality could lead all of us to submit to a totalitarian regime, a democratic regime that treats us as equals equals in our slavery. In other words, the important point I want to make here is that the moral valuation that Jefferson and the founding generation put on the democratic revolution to overthrow tyranny becomes, in the spirit of modern social science, a neutral position. Tocqueville says it could be good, it could be bad. We don't know. You might say that Jefferson's view of the Republican millennium, he imagines that when all regimes become Republican, we will live in peace just as we live in peace within republics. Republics will live peacefully with each other. Nation states will be dismantled and will live in a dream world of total peace and prosperity. You can imagine, and Jefferson actually uses this terminology you can imagine the end of history. He says in one of his letters, what do we have to say to the chroniclers of history who have so much to write in Europe where there's constant warfare? Well, years, decades go by in America and nothing happens. There's no need for history because history is an affliction of the old regime. Well, Tocqueville says, I'm sorry, the democratic revolutions, that idea of equality, have initiated a new epoch of history, and we don't know how it's going to turn out, for better or worse. Those enlightenment dreams of the American founders are dissipated in the hard realities of the French Revolutionary Wars, Napoleonic Wars, and their aftermath. We have no idea how this idea of equality will be harnessed. Will it be directed toward good ends? And Tocqueville has no question in his own mind that not only was the American Revolution 
a good thing, but that even the French Revolution is a good thing. There's no turning back. But what can we do to preserve liberty under these new conditions? And that's really Tocqueville's central concern, is the preservation of liberty. I'm going to get on to Lincoln shortly, but I want to set up the problem for you. And the, f the, f the first way to do that is to suggest that Tocqueville takes the idea of democracy, and even as he celebrates the American experiment and says this is the future, he has great concerns about what that future portends for the nations of the modern world. Will democracy be a good thing? Jefferson's great fear, and this is one of the big arguments I want to make here, is that democracy is always defined against its antithesis, or what is posed as its antithesis, or negation. For Jefferson, democracy is defined against, democracy is defined against aristocracy. For Tocqueville, democracy could either be despotic or it could be free. It's a great question looming over the future. So, what does Tocqueville? Toque, Jefferson fears aristocracy. Tocqueville fears democratic despotism. Jefferson fears that the revolution will be reversed. That the forces of monarchism and aristocracy will exact their revenge and reestablish the old regime. It's why Jefferson is so paranoid, because he thinks that people like Alexander Hamilton and his Federalist foes are seeking to reestablish a, a British-style monarchical regime in America as soon as they get a chance. And that encourages, makes Jefferson suspicious of the motives of others. And also, it must be said, it's that fear of counter-revolution that makes Jefferson into a passionately violent man, even a bloodthirsty man. Jefferson has been described as a kind of a pacifist. Somebody believes that at the end of history, at the end of time, we'll all live in peace, as I've just suggested. But what do we do in the meantime? While we are confronted by powerful foes, we will need to make war against them. And you will have to sacrifice yourselves on behalf of that larger good so that your children may enjoy the benefit of free government. So Tocqueville has a different view of things. He doesn't think that aristocracy will ever return. He doesn't have Jefferson's anxieties. His anxieties are rather what might happen to and under the aegis of democracy. And it's precisely because Tocqueville doesn't think there's any possibility of an aristocratic revival that Tocqueville can see that survivals from the old regime are precisely what is needed to preserve liberty. Let me see if I can explain this. If you're familiar with democracy in America, you'll see some things that Jefferson would have found very upsetting. For one thing, Tocqueville says, lawyers are good. Can you imagine that? Lawyers are good because they sustain a kind of a corporatist aristocratic spirit in the modern age. They fetishize the law. They, they're proceduralists. They have a kind of a group ethic, a consciousness 
that curbs excesses. In fact, the regime of law is one of the ways whereby all of our potential conflicts become channeled and directed, ritualized and contained. Tocqueville also has good things to say about preachers, about priestcraft. He believes that it's religion that's crucial to sustaining order in a democratic age. He also believes, famously, in the effectiveness of local self-government. Here he agrees with Jefferson. Tocqueville is a federalist with a small f. He believes that it's those New England towns. He spends a lot of time talking to New Englanders, Jared Sparks and others, who tell him that liberty survives in America because these old institutions that date back to the founding of the American settlements in the colonial period, Americans were born, the United States was born with the practices of the old world under the aegis of a democratic revolution. They had the best of both. It's a kind of a hybrid. Why is democracy a good thing in America? It's because Americans live under a rule of law. It's because they go to church. It's because their energies are directed into civil society, into local government, and so forth. So it's precisely the ways in which aristocratic survivals can sustain liberty that gives Tocqueville reasons to hope. And you might even say that people like Jefferson, who's a large property owner and a slave owner, and who's certainly a man of the old regime, epitomizes Tocqueville's point. The new American nation is a hybrid. It has survivals from the old world that it incorporates into its way of life. And this is the key to preserving liberty in the modern world. The problem with the French Revolution is it was so total. It wiped the slate clean. It led to a massive centralization of power, the destruction of the churches, to a complete renovation of society. And that's why liberty is at risk in Europe. Well, Tocqueville and Jefferson fear different things. But I want to get to Lincoln, and who's by far the most interesting of these three people. But I want to set him up for you properly. And I want to suggest that Tocqueville and Jefferson despite their disagreements about the threats to democracy, share a fundamental agreement on several points. They both agree that democracy is the way of the modern world, that equality is the master principle. They also believe, and I'm harking back now to my earlier comments about Jefferson and power, they also believe in the destiny of great nations to control the future of the world, and that the United States will be a great nation. This is Shirley Jefferson's conviction. He's an American nationalist, even as he's an American Democrat. And it's also Tocqueville's prescience, something that cold warriors loved, and that students of international relations loved, that Tocqueville predicted that one day Russia and the United States would master the world. They would be the two great powers. And it worked out for a while, and then it didn't. But during that period, Tocqueville seemed brilliantly prescient that he'd foreseen all this. But there's one thing 
that neither one could foresee. Tocqueville is famous for being the student of American individualism, mass society, conformism, civil society, you name it. He's a Bible still to social scientists and historians in America. But Tocqueville did not believe in the possibility of a multiracial society. In fact, it's in this area that Tocqueville owes his greatest debt to Jefferson, because Jefferson had said in his notes in the state of Virginia that the only solution to the slavery problem, the problem of racial slavery, was emancipation and expatriation, the separation of these two peoples, black and white. That notion of whiteness being associated with democracy and the nation is very powerful in the antebellum decades. It's crucial to American history in this period. And when Tocqueville comes, enlightened European that he is, he doesn't see any alternative. In the most powerful passages in democracy in America on the three races, Tocqueville gives us a dark vision of what will happen to Indians. They will either be assimilated and become white or they will die in resisting. And there will never be the liberation of the slaves. There cannot be. As Jefferson had said, the prejudices were too deeply embedded in the psyches of blacks and whites. Because, to put it bluntly, as Jefferson did, masters and their slaves were locked into a, an institutionalized state of war. Slavery is a state of war. As Jefferson famously put it in 1820, we have the wolf by the ear. If you drop that wolf, and it's going to get awfully tiring holding that wolf for a long time, if you drop the wolf, the wolf will attack you and kill you. The wolf, of course, is the institution of slavery. There's nothing we can do. The only hope is a radical separation. And this gets to another dimension of the national idea in the 19th century, and that is of equality within the nation, homogeneity, identity. We are all equal as nationals. That notion all men are created equal in the 19th century becomes all men within this nation as nationals are equal. Nationality is the great equalizer, but it also, of course, fosters a sense of difference. We are equal to each other. We are different from other nations. And furthermore, the idea of nation, which suggests this kind of homogeneity, identity, it's very important to the American founders that we all share these common values, that we all agree on these fundamental things. Well, that notion of homogeneity is closely linked to race. In fact, the terms race and nation are virtually indistinguishable in the late 18th century. Race in contemporaneous usage is not as hard a term as it becomes in the 19th century. It could refer to the Irish race, perhaps to ethnicity, to any group that seems to be living together in a particular place for a long period of time. It doesn't necessarily have the virulent strains of 19th century racial thought. But the idea of race and nation are very, very close. And the reason for this is that the national idea is premised on equality and homogeneity. 
And what I'm saying here, this is the big setup for Lincoln, is that democracy and nationhood, as 19th century Americans understood them, did not suggest any possibility of resolving the American race problem. And that's what makes Lincoln interesting. I want to conclude, and I don't know how much time I really have now, another 10 minutes or yeah, so. Yeah, okay. This is going to be really exciting because I know you're here to, to listen about <laughs> Lincoln and you said, oh, he's just doing more of this Jefferson stuff. <laughs> okay, put yourselves in the place of Abraham Lincoln as he seeks to preserve the Union after the secession of the southern states. And think of all the obstacles that he faces. Now, when we tell our national story in Whiggish terms, meaning toward the telos or the end of, well, whatever we've reached today and our glorious future, we start with the founders, then we have Lincoln, then we have, I don't know, Woodrow Wilson. Is he a good guy? He's a good guy. Yeah. Roosevelt. Very good guy. Right. And... Uh, uh, the, the verdict's out on the most recent president. Just joking. It's, <laughs> it's not. Uh, historians get to decide. Uh, Bush has often said this, and I'm an historian, and I decide complete failure. I don't know why he's only supposed to be the seventh, seventh worst president in American history. <laughs> I want to recount now. I mean, it's like, the, it's like the Florida vote. There's some hanging chads out there because he's number one in my book. But that... Uh, I'm afraid that's going to be on the podcast, and I'm going to get in big trouble with Gilder no, no, So no. I take it all back. It I didn't mean a word. It goes down very well at the other <laughs> I didn't mean a word of it. In other words, what I'm <laughs> suggesting is we have a progressive narrative. All national histories are stories, narratives of progress over time, the fulfillment of the national idea as we overthrow the, the tyrannical despots who denied us our freedom, and then we become a great nation and we change the world. And isn't that a wonderful story? Well, what I want to tell you tonight is that Abraham Lincoln had formidable obstacles to overcome. The first one was that when the Confederates seceded, they could do so with the approval of the liberal world, a liberal world that had seen the promise of 1848 thwarted, the promise of 1848 national self-determination as the peoples of Europe rose up yet once more in futility to claim their rights. What could be more progressive, more in tune with the idea of the 19th century moving forward than the liberation of peoples, the Irish, the Confederates? Now, we know that these are loathsome people and I, with you, will moralize about them anytime and tell you that slaveholding is loathsome, and it is. Let's just establish this now. But what I want to tell you is that in Lincoln's time, the right of peoples to determine their own destiny was way up there on the list of good things in the world. I've talked a little bit about the notion of race and nation and homogeneity. Well, the 19th century, in terms of attitudes towards race, takes giant steps backwards, we think, in our enlightened 21st century. From the enlightenment position that all men are created equal 
by the mid-19th century, all right-thinking ethnologists and anthropologists and science, scientists of humanity have concluded that there is a hierarchy of races and that some are better than others. And that the world faces a great race problem. If the world is going to make progress, I'm the, the 19th century incarnate right now. I don't believe these things, but I'm speaking for the 19th century. If the world is going to fulfill its great potential, then we have to find a way to bring the gifts of civilization to the darker skinned peoples of the, of the tropical zones, of the semi-tropical zones, because in those zones are locked up the great wealth of the world, the potential productivity of the rest of the world. But unfortunately, we either have, as in Asia, stationary or backward societies that are not moving forward. They may have been great civilizations once, or we have barbarous peoples in the Americas and in Africa. So we face a great challenge. How can we fulfill the promise of this planet? And that promise is understood in terms of the productivity, of wealth creation, and of spreading civilization and Christianity. Well, Southerners could say to an enlightened world, we have a solution. The word slavery is still one that has pejorative connotations, but it's maybe not the appropriate term for our institution in the South. I'm not going to rehearse these arguments for you. They're deeply offensive. They have to do with why slavery is a good thing. But what I want to emphasize as I give you a list of or a view of the horizon that Lincoln faces, why Southerners might think that the enlightened world would support their bid for national self-determination. It's because look what's happening here in Britain in the 19th century. You know what they called economics then? It's the London School of the Dismal Science. <laughs> is that it? Something like that. Dismal Science. I think that term is going to make a comeback mm. now. <laughs> what, has, what happens to the workers in the factories that Marx and the Engels commented on in Manchester? What was the fate of the English working class? If you wanted something to, to, to get you morally outraged, uh, what about the wholesale destruction of human life in early industrialization. Surely there's a better way. What kind of welfare is provided for workers? Well, slavery is a cradle-to-grave welfare system. We'll go on. I'll, I'll drop that. But there's, that's another argument. And also the idea, again, that race and nation are very closely aligned. There's another problem that Lincoln has to confront. It's the problem that on democratic terms, the Southerners have the better argument. In terms of majorities, is the master principle of democracy majority rule? Well, Tocqueville warned us that Democrats are not necessarily good people. Democrats, and Lincoln says this in his exchanges with 
Douglas in the Illinois senatorial election. If you have a majority and you could use your power as the majority to extort labor and wealth from the minority, would not that be the sort of rational thing that your public choice, I'm not joking, that an economist might recommend? Isn't it rational? Is there something about us because we're Democrats that makes us feel that the violation of somebody else's rights is unacceptable? Is that built into our genetic code? Does it seem to have been so in the history of the way democratic majorities have used their power? By no means is that clear. But let's just use the formal test of majority rule and ask whether the Southerners meet that test better than Lincoln does. If there were an election, if you could have an election of all the American people on the question of should the Southerners be allowed to go, and the Southerners get as many votes per capita as Northerners do, I think it's pretty clear that a majority would have voted to let them go. Why not? My ancestors on my non-European Polish side were Yankees, and I still regret the fact that we have a single union that includes the red states. Why didn't we take our big chance in 1861? <laughs> Let them go. They want to go. They are loathsome people. We don't want to be in the same union with them. No. No, we got stuck with the South, and we still are. I'm, that's another thing that's, please, please edit out from the podcast. <laughs> so the elections that took place in the secession conventions met the highest standard of American constitutional democratic practice. They mimicked, they followed the example of the ratifying conventions in the states that ratified the federal constitution. If you took a poll of let's say, the most learned constitutional lawyers in the antebellum period, the years before the war, what would they say about the right of secession? A majority would say, yes, it's inherent in the very idea of a consensual union of free states, the right of exit. It's something that democratic theorists continue to worry about today. Is there no right of exit? And Lincoln says, absolutely not. You can't go. So what I want to suggest is that Lincoln's position is in many ways against the grain of his own times. Now, of course, that sounds like I'm about to set him up for this mythologizing and heroizing discussion, and I'm afraid I am to some extent, and please forgive me, and don't take away my credentials to practice history. But I think what's interesting about Lincoln, and this is the concluding points I want to make, is that Lincoln's determination not to let the South go is a result not of his dedication to the rights of enslaved African Americans. Lincoln wants to preserve the Union because he is a 19th century nationalist because he does not want to forfeit the great power that this nation has 
to determine the future destinies of the world. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you want to go. The nation is more than a sum of its parts. The nation is a transgenerational legacy of something that must be cherished and sustained and passed on. We may not have a majority now, but we will, Jeff Lincoln says. And as Lincoln says this, he looks back to Jefferson. And he says, Jefferson could, in the Declaration of Independence, have merely made an argument for national independence, for a revolution against British rule. But instead, he had the foresight and the vision to include an abstract principle, and that is universal rights. The rights of all. All men are created equal. So that this was not merely a document for Americans, it was a document for the world. A standing rebuke to would-be tyrants. As I said, Jefferson had no solution to the problem of race. Jefferson probably would have seceded. But it's Lincoln's reimagining Jefferson's legacy in his debates with Douglas and then in his Gettysburg Address that effects a radical transformation of the, of the idea of democracy in America. It's the combination of nation and democracy that's critical. And the most important thing is that Lincoln's understanding of the American nation extends across time and across space. The national home, as he calls it, may not be divided, it must be preserved, because this is a home for future generations. We must honor the fathers four score and seven years ago. We must look forward to the future. This idea of the immortal nation is the means by which Lincoln redefines democracy. Because this is what's finally crucially important. If Lincoln had not been determined to preserve the Union, there never would have been sufficient power to overthrow the institution of slavery. There were plenty of people who were opposed to slavery in the 19th century, whether they were Christian evangelicals, abolitionists of, an immediate, uh, of the immediatist variety, whether they were classical or uh, classical economists who imagined a world without nations and a free trade, harking back to Adam Smith, they say slavery is an archaic institution. There were plenty of people opposed to slavery. But slavery in the 19th century was a power. The slave power of the South had enormous force that it could muster. And the South proved to be a formidable foe because Southerners had their own national idea. And this is what Lincoln recognized, that their national idea was based on the premise of slavery. And did the world care? No. The British loved to congratulate themselves on emancipation in the West Indies, and the end of the slave trade, policing the Atlantic, 
But who was consuming all the cotton? Who sustained King Cotton in the South? Southerners believed they held the balance of economic power. Were they wrong? The world didn't seem to care. Jefferson had said, every young man in America, every man will rise up as one in defense of American liberties. Well, that's what happened in the Confederate States of America. Every young man. Morale was incredibly high in the South, even among non-slaveholders. It's a testament to the power of the national idea. We see that idea based on a perverse and immoral premise of racial slavery. But is that the way the rest of the world saw it? No. The only people who saw it, and this is something that William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass came to recognize, the only hope of destroying the slave power was by amassing an equally and more formidable power in the rump union to redeem the idea of nationhood. So for the first time, you had the power of the nation associated with the liberation of an oppressed and enslaved people. That was Lincoln's genius, his contribution. Because until that moment, nationhood and democracy are morally bankrupt, at least from our enlightened perspective. There's nothing about those ideas that would lead toward social justice and emancipation. At best, it would lead to a modern welfare state for us, the nationals, who can, claim, who can claim citizenship. Would it lead to the liberation of an enslaved population? No. Could you imagine one nation made out of two? Remember, Jefferson and Tocqueville both had agreed that blacks and whites were hostile nations. What did Lincoln think? Lincoln believed in colonization, too. He tried this out on black leaders. He said, how about it? Can we ship you someplace? And they said, you know who the real Americans are here, Mr. Lincoln? You know who has real attachments to the land? You know who made this country great? Now, I've been personifying a lot of people now. I'm talking on behalf of, oh, I didn't see that before, on behalf of <laughs> African Americans. We're not going to go. We don't want to go. By the force of events, by contingencies, this is the historian's favorite last resort, contingencies. Jefferson, I mean, Lincoln famously said to Horace Greeley, if I could save the Union without freeing a single slave, I would do it. But he had to destroy slavery to save the Union. He had the power in the Union war machine to devastate the South. And it was necessary to devastate the South because there was no other way to end the institution of slavery. Because the institution of slavery is the foundation of the Confederate States of America had a rosy future in a receptive or indifferent world, the South would have risen to the first rank of modern nations, perhaps with a manifest destiny to extend its power through Mexico and the Caribbean, 
to bring the genius of southern institutions to benighted peoples everywhere. That didn't happen. It didn't happen because it couldn't happen. It didn't happen because Lincoln's vision of democracy and nationhood depended on vanquishing the South. What was at first the means toward that end, the end of slavery, became an end and a justification as Lincoln wonders on that bloody battlefield at Gettysburg in November 1863. How do we make sense out of all this? How do we justify it? And he told us, well, there will be a new birth of freedom. A new birth. A bloody new birth. Without that new birth of freedom, the national idea in America, the idea of democracy in America, would not have its universal resonance. And this is what Lincoln concludes with. Just as he imagines Jefferson writing that declaration with an eye toward the future of a better world of free peoples, so that idea will be redeemed on this battlefield. And democracy will not be the rule of majority of the privileged, but Lincoln's rough-hewn egalitarianism his belief that no one has the right to take from anybody else, ideas that you can see in his debates with Douglas, those would be the stuff of a new idea of the nation, of the American nation, and therefore of the redemption of the democratic promise. Peter, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see you want to change the name of the London School of Economics to the London School of Dismal Science, who knows, I mean, in this day and age. Uh, let's just uh, open up straight away to, I'm sure we're going to get quite a lot of questions, and I'm sure provide a lot of good answers too. There's a gentleman here, please, yeah, could we have the, the microphone down here? Um, yeah, take the mic. Oh, sorry. That's okay. Two things. Your comment that the liberal world tended to favour the South. Now, I think of... It's more complicated than that. Yeah, of course, I'm oversimplifying, perforce. I think of Richard Cobden, a very prominent who, whose admiration for Lincoln grew from their meeting at Springfield in 1859. I think of John Stuart Mill, the iconic liberal. And also, this leads to a second point. Lincoln read Mill. Mill knew, respected, and corresponded with de Tocqueville. What, if anything, did Lincoln know of de Tocqueville? I don't think he knew anything about Tocqueville. If you take the... Yeah. Uh, Peter, over to you. Yeah, the, the point about liberals. Uh, I'm exaggerating surely. What I want to do is shake us out of the complacent assumption that opinion was moving toward a more enlightened uh, notion of racial difference and of human justice. Mm. You're absolutely right. But uh, of course, Cobden and, and, the, uh, and the British liberals 
put enormous stock in the, the possibilities of free trade and of, uh, of uh, uh, the reciprocity that's implicit in free trade. What I'm crediting Lincoln with was a willingness, because he was a nationalist, to use the kind of power that the nation state could wield against the slave power. Certainly, there is a, a bright line of liberal thinking. Tocqueville was opposed to slavery. Uh, his uh, Gobineau, his uh, young protege, was a racial theorist of the most pernicious sort. Uh, it was, let's say, not clear in the mid-19th century what the future of social justice in terms of racial, uh, in racial terms would be, because of course we're looking forward to the great period of uh, imperialism and what Kipling called the white man's burden. Uh, that's, uh, when did he say that? In the very late 19th century. Uh, so all I want to suggest is that there is the, the narrative of developments in the 19th century is actually not moving with Lincoln. And it is a contingent outcome that Lincoln's determination as a nationalist to save the Union would destroy slavery. I'm not discrediting the sincerity of his own commitments, uh, which uh, they surely were. He believed in the, that slavery would be on the road to ultimate extinction if we simply limited the expansion of the institution. But conversely, if new slave states were created in the American West and the slave power continued to dominate the Union, then slavery had an indefinite future. Great. I think there's a question over here. Sorry, I, um, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with a great deal of what you say, but I think you get rather um, carried away at the end by Lincoln's genius and the change it all makes in America. I mean, in his debates with Douglas, he proves himself to be quite racist. Like Jefferson, he wants to uh, let the blacks go back to Africa if that's possible. Uh, he frees uh, the slaves during the war, which is not what he intended to do. Uh, that wasn't, wasn't, as you say, what, wasn't what the war was really about. Uh, but the thing about Lincoln is that at the end of the war, in the middle of the war, uh, if you look at the, what plans he has for reconstruction, uh, they're not the kind of plans that would suggest he's got a genius for a democratic future and everything's going to be bright and shiny. I mean, it's more or less the same kind of stuff that Andrew Johnson gets impeached for. And uh, one thinks that, you know, if he hadn't been shot, he might have been impeached. So can I just do this to me? Yeah. Uh, and in the end, what you get after Lincoln is not some brilliant city shining on a hill, but uh, you know the Jim Crow laws, the Solid South, apartheid for a hundred years. So in the end, one's left with the lingering thought that well, if they'd been left to secede, they might have come back if they hadn't actually been forced, and that, you know slavery might have died out. And given that 625,000 people died. Was it worth it? And uh, in the end, is, is Lincoln really the big thing that you make him out to be? Well, uh, that's, that's up to you, isn't it? It's up to us. Uh, and I would say what Lincoln said about Jefferson, we could say about Lincoln. It's not so much that even his speech at Gettysburg got a big reaction at the time, as you well know. It's that he had, uh, as we would say, and I understand that there's a mythologizing tendency here, he laid down those words. He revived Jefferson, and he himself became an iconic figure. Probably he had to die. Uh, J 
Jefferson didn't create a perfect democracy. Uh, Lincoln didn't. And for the next 100 years, and I told you, I, I disclosed my full position here, and that is I, I would have let them go. I, I agree with that. What I'm trying to do as an historian is to suggest how the idea of democracy for subsequent generations took on the qualities that it did was re-moralized, is the way I put it. Tocqueville, in effect, uh, neutralizes democracy. It's not either good or bad. Uh, in a sense, he demoralizes it from the Jeffersonian position. That is, the democratic idea will change the world for the better. Lincoln, by appropriating and reinterpreting uh, Jefferson, remoralizes the idea of democracy. Now, you'll remember my opening comments were that we, we conflate and confuse democracy and nation. And I also said that what nations do is make war. Would I abolish nations if I could? I mean, I, I don't have answers for these questions. I mean, you are all bright, modern, engaged citizens. It's your world. Do something about it. Uh, I, I'm just suggesting how it is that the idea of democracy has the potency it does in America. And it does, I think, because of Lincoln. A hundred years of failure to follow through. Was he like Kennedy fortunate in his early death? Probably. Yep. Was there another hand going up over here? Sorry. Yep, there's a gentleman down here. Thanks very much. Sir. Thank you. I think I've got a very small question, but it's worrying me. Why didn't you start with Thomas Paine? <laughs> yeah, we're the Brits. We're the Brits, hey. uh, Peter. <laughs> uh, well, if you wanted a, uh, a, a, an inspiring and progressive uh, genealogy, you'd start with Paine. Uh, it's, uh, of course, I'm talking about democracy in America, the title of the talk. Paine uh, died in disgrace was associated with uh, deistic ideas or worse. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's the, uh, the French Revolution did him in, in more ways than one. Um, I start with Jefferson because that's the way the national narrative starts. And besides, I'm a Jefferson scholar. <laughs> I'm not hiding this. Yeah. Uh, we're going to do a conference on pain here in London <coughs> in uh, September. And uh, so if you're excited, uh, keep, your, uh, keep your eyes out. Peter, me. getting back to the uh, this brings back the international relations side of it again, I suppose. But uh, on the international relations of the, of the Civil War, could you kind of develop that a, a bit more? Because I, I kind of pick up on the point made yeah. by the gentleman here. That, no, uh, and it's a good point. Um, I, I, th I thought the internet, if I can use the term international community, uh, w w which didn't really exist then, of course, but I thought they were kind of deeply divided. There were splits within each nation state you're talking about within yeah. Britain and elsewhere. And even the British themselves were hugely hesitant. I think it was only the Battle of Antietam, I think, right. which actually right. turned, turned the tide. And right. the other thing is, uh, so a, a bit more on the international relations of the Civil War, I'd be interested in. Secondly, to what degree was Lincoln himself aware of, of, of the international community oh, in, in terms of the way he, uh, the, and, and, and the even the abolition statement itself? Yeah. Uh, so bring in the IR bit, uh, just, he, for the, he just the historians. That it's, uh, 
one of the great and happy surprises for the anti-slavery uh, mm. uh, forces is that the English working classes mm. seem surprisingly, mm. uh, uh, well, they, they, mm. they've loved Lincoln ever since, mm. just to some extent. Mm. Uh, what, uh, what the actual conduct of the war demonstrated, you're exactly right, is that though, uh, of course, Britain had a cotton surplus and, and uh, could deal with the interruption mm. of the cotton supply. So in terms of playing their hand uh, with King Cotton, uh, the Southerners miscalculated. Uh, but it was prudent then, and it's prudent, in, in, as you students of IR international relations know, mm -hmm. not to play your hand prematurely. You have to find out which way the wind is blowing. Uh, it's pretty clear that if the Southerners had been able for a little bit longer to sustain uh, the credible reality of a functioning nation state, that uh, that recognition might have followed. Mm. Uh, that That's a kind of a, a, a vacuous statement. It's a familiar one, though. And, it, and it's uh, Europeans were tracking the battlefield news very closely mm. uh, to see what was going to happen. And this was deeply discouraging for, for, the, for the Union, did so poorly in the early campaigns, but uh, eventually was able to, to uh, timing was everything, uh, had, uh, had the, um, the, the Union not enjoyed great successes in the Western campaigns and uh, demonstrated its ability to, uh, to mount an effective blockade and so forth, uh, European powers, powers might have been different. What I'm saying is that if you were a Southerner on the eve of the war, mm. you wouldn't be far off in saying, you know, I think we have some good chances of, uh, of cutting a deal. And there were powerful elements in the British government sure. and in the French government. Uh, and that, that would have made a world of difference. After all, nationhood, which we mythologize as something that we and our, our self-expression as peoples assert our nationhood, nationhood is a function of recognition. Um, na nationhood is what other nations say it is. And, and in the end, I mean, your, your point about the international system is absolutely vital. That's what the Southerners are playing for. They're playing for recognition. They don't think they can go alone. They think they have a future in the world. They're not anti-modern. Mm. They think they've got a better version of modernity. Mm. Uh, mm. And, and I, I would just want to underscore yet again that the outcomes are just not certain. You, how long could you sustain northern morale? And one of the reasons why Lincoln doesn't move on slavery quickly mm. is that he's got to placate the border states. He can't afford to allow the Union coalition to collapse because it's, it's fragile. Uh, does every northerner share his devotion uh, to the idea of the union of the nation? No. Uh, though I, I, I think actually arguments that the southerners had better morale than the northerners in the, in the end is, is can't, can't be uh, held up. My argument about the Civil War, an argument I made with my brother in the last book that we wrote together, mm. is uh, that what we have rehearsed in America is, a, uh, is a, the first modern war between modern nations and with all the devastation that that entails and demonstration of the power of modern nations to wreak havoc. And uh, uh, Americans, in as they approached war, it's often argued that they didn't have an adequately developed sense of national identity and all this stuff. And I think that's just absolutely wrong. The Americans had a surfeit of patriotic feeling, so much patriotic feeling that they could indulge in the slaughter of 600,000 plus of their own people 
uh, as an expression of their nationalism. They're all good Americans killing each other out there, folks. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a gentleman over here. Yeah, please. Thank you. What do you think Jefferson feared more, the threat of aristocracy, the aristocracy to democracy, yeah. or the fear of slavery, the wolf getting free uh, and, and wrecking the nation? Yeah. Uh, he, he feared them both. Uh, it's a wonderful question. Uh, Jefferson was most concerned, getting back to the question of international relations, uh, about servile insurrection in the context of foreign war. Uh, the American Revolution is the paradigm case, but the War of 1812 as, as well. Uh, all North Americans were well aware of what had happened in Saint-Domingue and the possibility of a massive uh, uh, servile insurrection and bloodletting. Uh, his fears, but his fears of slave insurrection were intermittent. Uh, that is, they depended on those geopolitical circumstances. In peacetime, uh, when we had no history, uh, Jefferson had a rather rosier view of the condition of his own slaves and imagined himself as a kind of ameliorating patriarch who would make his slaves happy. Uh, I think there's a good chance that Jefferson, had he lived even longer, and he lived long enough, Lord knows, uh, would have gone the whole nine yards toward pro-slavery. Uh, the ameliorative impulse was always at odds with the notion of doing justice uh, to the enslaved captive nation of African Americans. Um, the aristocracy thing is a wonderful question also uh, because uh, he seems to be overreacting in the, in the uh, party struggles of the first party system uh, imagining that his partisan enemies wanted to establish aristocracy was nonsensical. Uh, they might have wanted a more centralized government. They might wanted to diminish states' rights uh, and uh, create a British-style fiscal military state. No question about that, but that's not aristocracy. Uh, but it was a way of understanding the world, which was enormously powerful and influential for Jefferson and his followers and subsequent generations because it became the ultimate uh, cause of war or reason to fight, to make sacrifices, was to preserve the fragile experiment in Republican self-government against the forces of reaction. Let's look around for a, there's a gentleman at the back there, yeah. Oh. Uh, hi, uh, just going back to uh, Tocqueville's observation that um, democracy could, be, could either enslave or uh, free uh, the population, how far do you think this line of thought of democracy in, in America um, depends on uh, the, uh, as the assumption of an aristocracy uh, for the structural functioning of, uh, of democracy? Like, were these thinkers actually uh, presupposing the existence of an aristocracy? Um, uh, well, uh, like even even throughout all of their yeah, their uh, thought. Actually, the word aristocracy continues to resonate. Well, mm. actually, throughout the 19th century, it even has resonances today. But it's a big deal in the antebellum decades. Tocqueville says, and this is I think interesting and revealing. Just there, there will be no aristocracy. Give up on it. Don't worry about it. It's not a problem. He says, manufacturers, 
that is the captains of industry, cannot constitute an aristocracy. This is where Jefferson would have said, are you kidding me? Because what uh, this language of aristocracy did was to enable uh, Democrats to oppose all dangerous <coughs> concentrations of power, the new forms that aristocracy would take uh, that, that had to be controlled if liberty were going to be preserved. Uh, but Tocqueville doesn't recognize that. So we give Tocqueville a lot of credit for his prescience, uh, that is, that uh, he sees the future of the world better. But he doesn't understand the problem of, uh, of, uh, of, of wealth concentration, how a free society can, in fact, lead to new forms of uh, despotism. He's oblivious to that, because his overwhelming concern is with the preservation of liberty. And that really has a, an aristocratic flavor in and of itself, because, of course, liberty and the rule of law are legacies of constitutionalism. And constitutionalism is just kind of a a, 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 a form of collective understanding that, that harks back to uh, the old regime. That is, the British Constitution, the balance of king, lord, uh, and, uh, and commons, that mixed idea of mixed government. I don't even know what I'm talking about now. Uh, <laughs> I hope that was responsive. Yeah. I'll take one, uh, one final question from the floor. Uh, general, yeah, gentlemen at the back there. Um, what does uh, this uh, story about democracy in America tell us uh, about today's effort, uh, efforts of spreading democracy yeah. abroad? Yeah. I was asked by a student of international relations, right. by the uh, way. And just to, I, I wanted to spot him for yeah, you. Know? And, and uh, I appreciate both of these interventions, which suggest that, uh, and I tried to correct for it, that I might be getting too excited on Lincoln's behalf and therefore endorsing this redemptive idea of democracy. Uh, if we did its latter history, we would take it in two directions, I think. One would be uh, to look at what had happened in America, uh, that is, until the second Reconstruction. Uh, and the other would be, so what difference has the democratic idea actually made in the world? And here I would say, for all the residents, for all the I, I, I will give you a comp complicated answer, that Americans, because of their understanding of what happened in their own national history, would think that democracy had been redeemed and vindicated and was an unalloyed force for good in the world. In other words, they would confuse the national and the universal. And I would say, as a student of, uh, of the modern world, that that's probably all in all been a bad thing. So. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Gilder Lerman. I was trying to say nice stuff about Lincoln. I never say nice stuff about Jefferson, but uh, <laughs> then there you go. Uh, it's, it's complicated, in other words. I, I don't want to suggest that I don't think uh, that idea of a multiracial society, if it is Lincoln's, at least the idea of, of no systemic structural legal inequalities can be justified in a modern nation. That's a very powerful idea. Of course I endorse it. Does it mean that the American way of politics and life is, uh, is the pattern for the world? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's one more. Uh, gentleman there, yeah, please. Yeah, behind you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, perhaps I should start with your, your last comment. I understood earlier you spoke about 
popular sovereignty being at the heart of the nation. Can you sort of balance that with the idea of a, a state based on the rule of law, not on the rule of people, as they say? And then the second question, which is probably more relevant to your topic than, than the first question, is Lincoln's um, decision to free the slaves, um, which you know, uh, has, has been a subject of your, part, partly a subject of your discussion, would you say that the dominant explanation is, is what one can call prudence? Uh, or what you call contingency. But, but perhaps in Machiavellian thought, prudence, it's, it's the prudent thing to do, as opposed to a moral thing to do. And if it is a prudential decision, does it really matter whether it was a prudential decision or, or it is a, a moral decision? Or is, is really our problem that we, we tend to want to put a moral gloss over political decisions that are made purely at the moment of prudence? Yeah. Those are, those are good questions. I'll, I'll take the latter one first and uh, suggest certainly, and this was the point I tried to make, uh, Lincoln's decisions are based, based on prudent calculations given the higher value of preserving the Union. That's what he says throughout. Uh, however, it's important to note that Lincoln's idea of the union and the nation is one that is ultimately incompatible with the institution of slavery in the long term as he understands it. That is with the ultimate course of, dis uh, of extinction to which if the Republican Party platform of no more slavery in new territories had then been the rule of the land because the Republican administration governed and that became, uh, and the northern majorities grew because of population growth, Lincoln expected the end of slavery. He makes it very clear before the war that though he is, of course, a racist, and who isn't, uh, and though he wouldn't want his daughter to marry an African-American, uh, that he does not believe in the legitimacy, the legality uh, of one class of people stealing the labor and the lives of another category of people. Uh, so there's always a moral dimension. The ironic point I wanted to make is that that morality gets you nowhere, is useless, and there are plenty of moralizing people in that world and in this world who can't do a thing. And whether or not you think the price was, and I, I don't want to trivialize the loss of 600,000 lives, and Maybe we would have been better off if we just let them go. That's what I told you, I think. Nonetheless, if the slave power was going to be destroyed, it could only be by the amassed power of the northern nation state. Uh, now, you can think about that as a moral dilemma. And it deserves to be thought about as a moral dilemma. Is there ever an argument for state power being wielded in this way to the destruction of human life. Maybe I'm a lapsed Quaker, maybe you think not. Uh, but it's something that's worth thinking about. Neat distinctions between prudence and morality, I don't think they hold at the end of the day. There are slippery slopes in both directions. On rule of law, uh, is there an alternative? Can democracy be organized on rule of law? 
Well, we use conveniently the terms republic, a constitutional republic, to refer to a regime uh, which has preserved what are, in effect, uh, in effect, old regime institutions and a conception of political sociology that goes back to the old regime in which various groups in society deserve protections against each other in the institutional form of uh, governmental uh, uh, representation. The lords deserve to be protected, the king in parliament, that complex institution. It's those com commitments to rights, the rights of privileged groups, that gives rise to notions of rule of law. Tocqueville recognized this. So he was no absolutist about democracy. He said that we've got to mitigate the, the dangers of democratic despotism. And in resorting to these survivals from the old regime was precisely the way to do it because they could become habits of the heart. They could be internalized by people. That is, a democratic man is not necessarily the self-seeking uh, uh, I mean, democratic man can operate according to the customs and values, the moors of, of uh, rule of law. And that's what was so surprising to Tocqueville when he came to America. Uh, he would have said you can't turn back from the democratic revolution, but that in places where we can have this kind of hybrid, old and new work together, there is hope that we can combine liberty and <coughs> equality. And I think most of us today want to do both, and that is that we want to universalize rights, democratize rights, rights which historically were only enjoyed by the few. I would just suggest that historically that represents a kind of a tension at least, if not a contradiction in terms. Okay, I think we'll um, bring it to an end now. We've reached 8 o'clock, and I know that one or two other hands have gone up, but I think uh, we really do have to bring it to an end. Um, firstly, I'd like to move a vote of thanks to uh, Gilda Lemon itself. Uh, we've had a long and uh, productive relationship with Gilda Lemon between the LSE and Gilda Lemon, and uh, previously the Cold War Study Center and now Ideas. So I'd just like to, to put that on record for all the help and support they've given us, and we hope that this will continue. One of the great benefits of that was this evening's lecture. The other interesting relationship, I'm thinking, not just between brothers here, Peter, but between international relations and international history, because I'm often asked, you know, what's the difference? And my straightforward answer is I don't know, to which Arnie Westad said, if you don't know by now, Cox, you know, smell the coffee. But I do think again, I do think again, you know, this kind of, you know, this fake distinction between international relations and international history is one I think you've overcome very well this evening, if I might say so, and a terrific lecture, extremely challenging, and it's clearly challenged many members of the audience to rethink much about the, the natures of democracy, uh, nationhood, and indeed to rethink some aspects of the American Civil War in a very tough-minded fashion. So once again, been wonderful having you at the LSE, and we hope to see you back again very, very soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much.